0: Welcome to the Globe from the World Football Index. I'm your host, Bryce Dunn, and today we've got a rather special edition—an Israeli-Palestinian special. Uh, we're going to talk um, many things: football, political, maybe even history-based as well. There's, there's going to be a lot of learning happening, but I'm very excited for it. And uh, joining me is someone that you'd be rather familiar with, and that's Manu Vet. Manu, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Fascinating topic, really. Very
1: different than what we usually discuss, right, Bryce? Um, you know, usually, I mean, are, so. yeah. Usually, it's Bundesliga and Bayern München dominance. But this is going to be very interesting, and I'm really curious
0: to hear what our guest has to say. Yeah, I'm. I'm very excited. Um, and yes, let's move over to our guest. Uh, we've got a guy by the name Raphael Geller. R- Raphael, would you, would you explain to everyone just who you are and what your background is?
2: Yeah. First of all, thanks for for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Rafa Geller, as you mentioned. I'm a journalist based in Israel. I work uh, for BBC World's football show. It's on every uh, Thursday and Friday on the World Service Radio. And I also am freelance um, and work for Vice, P, and I uh, write op-eds. And I'm, my, my main topic uh, that I cover is football within the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, and uh, also more specifically covering the league. And uh, is are playing in Europe and finally uh, giving some more attention to uh, some of the smaller leagues in Europe that do not get as much media attention. And that's me in a 30, 45 second
0: nutshell. I'd just like to say on behalf of World Football Index, we really appreciate you coming on today. And yeah, I think we've got many things to uh, discuss uh, today. But but let's start in with uh, one team that uh, maybe a few of us would be familiar with and that uh, beats our uh, Jerusalem what what exactly uh, you know? Can you tell us about this club? It's, it's it's been filled with controversy over the year, hasn't it, Rafa? Yeah, I
2: mean, uh, Beit Jerusalem is uh, known across the world now, especially after the documentary, but even before that, as as a club with um, you could say extremist, right wing, very nationalistic uh, supporters who are very racist uh, towards Israeli Arabs. Uh, And we'll be using that term a bunch throughout the show, so maybe it's a good time to explain quickly what that means. The population of Israel is around 8.5 million people, and 1.5 million are residents, are are Arabs who, I mean, I'm trying to think of the the way to say it's the best politically, but Arabs who live in Israel within um, 1967 borders of Israel, so within the Green Line. You know, Israelis, just like I'm Israeli, they have a passport, they go to, to schools, that they're Their municipalities are funded by the Israeli government, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So Beitar Jerusalem has never had uh, an Israeli-Arab player in their history, um, where every other team in Israel has. There's any team in the Premier League or the Second Division, any relatively, not even big team, any team that you could think of has had no problems uh, signing an Israeli-Arab player, and they have uh, refused to. And in 2005, a very right-wing ultra group named La Familia formed, and they've kind of been... The major thing that we've seen, uh, you know, keep popping up in the headlines of some of their actions over the years. Uh, but I think one thing I want to say that's very important and it's not very well known amongst international audiences that Betar Jerusalem wasn't always the biggest club uh, in Jerusalem. It used to be Hapol Jerusalem. Uh, and then towards the 70s and 80s, the 1970s and 80s, uh, Betar Jerusalem kind of became the bigger club, more fans, uh, more nationalistic, more kind of the pride of Israel, you know, Jerusalem, all those things combined. And that's kind of a thing that people, it's, it's not like this club is like a, yes, this club is very old, obviously. It's, it's, it's very, very old. But it didn't used to be the biggest club at all in Jerusalem. And kind of as things changed through Israeli history, uh, whether that's, you know, the, the, the wars, the 1967 war, the 1973 war, different military campaigns, people kind of drifted more uh, towards this club. And I think that's something we'll probably talk about a little bit more. But that's kind of a, a quick Background of what 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 this club who this club are and what who the the players are behind
0: it. So I mean, uh, originally when you said uh, Chetnians uh, were, were signed for the club and it caused a bit of a uh, well a bit of unrest um, amongst you know the the club and and the fans. Um, I mean, who who is it imposes uh, the ban of uh, these um, these foreign players as such? I mean, is it the fans or has it been something that's always been ingrained in the club? I mean, we've got clubs like uh, Athletic Bilbao. Um, Who only play a, a certain kind of Spanish, you know, you know Basque players, but it, it's a little bit different. This, isn't it?
2: It's not in any guideline. It's not in any not down anywhere. It's not a a rule that needs to be. You know, it's not in a rule book. It, it's just something that's gone on throughout the years. The, the fans, La familia, obviously, mainly have said that if something like that were to happen, it wouldn't it'd be, it'd be. It'd be not good. It'd be very dangerous. Very, very dangerous for that player. Uh, very dangerous for the other Jewish players on the team, but um, you know the, the Israeli Arab players are some of the most talented players in Israel right now, and we see many of them. we uh, um, a lot of them have, have gone on to have great careers in Israel and also abroad. But it's you know it, there's plenty of Israeli Arab players who could play uh, for Beitar, but the team has just decided whenever they've had an opportunity to sign one, uh, they they did it. Now when they signed the Chechnya those those players are not Israeli Arab they're um, Muslim Muslim from Chechnya and just the fact that they were Muslim was enough to get uh, the fans very, very uh, angry, very very angry towards the fact that they were signing uh, Muslim players to their squad just because they have always had this image and this is why the name of the film is forever pure that Beitar Jerusalem, meaning they're they're 100 percent you know, if, if, they, if you're talking about Israeli players on the pitch, then they're Jewish, not not Muslim. They're Jewish, and they want it. That way. They see it as pure as in we're the only team that's done that. We're the only team that that's been a value for them, uh, and we want to keep it that way. We don't want to ever have Arabs on our team. And the Muslim thing was, again, a big deal, a huge deal, but not nearly as big of a deal as if an Arab a player would sign. And the Muslim players signing caused a huge Rock so just think about what would happen if uh, an Arab player actually uh, did make the move
1: yeah Rafael, I'm just gonna shoot in here because I remember this um, what we call over in a football crowd the Chechen affair right because in the Chechen of that's something people have to remember Chechens are, te- are Russian citizens and um, Chechen is of course a contentious area in within Russia itself. The club was actually owned by a Russian oligarch at the time right A uh, card Gaitamak. One of the things that he did brief just before he brought in these players, he also donated four hundred thousand dollars to oh, i hope i'm going to pronounce this right nahin um an israeli arab football club right and i think there was a lot of you know a lot of the tensions that developed during the chechen affair was also stemmed from that wasn't it
2: yeah no definitely i mean that's as a that's you know that's Be- that's Jerusalem's biggest uh you could say political rival i mean Bnei are, are the only Israeli Arab team in the Premier League. Uh, there's been, the Nazareth, for example, has in the past been in the Premier League, but they didn't stay for long. Uh, Sachnin has been in the Premier League for a very, very long time. In fact, they won the cup, the Israeli State Cup in 2004. Um, but they're the main, you know, they're the Arab team of the Premier League. Uh, they represent, in, in essence, the, the Arab sector of Israel, um, though not all Arabs support, and that's another story, but yeah, he donated money to them when they really needed it. Oh, that really upset uh, the fans of Beitar because you know you don't you don't for, if you take the politics out of it for a second, which obviously you shouldn't. But if you do, you don't ever donate money to your arch nemesis and to your rival. It's just it's unheard of. And then you add and then you add the political aspects to it, and it was really uh, you know a shocking thing. And then another thing also is that he took. Uh, Beitar to Chechnya, and they went to the club that's owned by uh, the leader of Chechnya. I think Tarek Granzi. Yeah, Yeah, Tarek Um, Crossney. Right. The Beitar players were there, and Channel Two in Israel (laughs) accompanied them on the documentary uh, and made a little mini documentary about it. Uh, And that also upset uh, Beitar players to see, uh, sorry, Beitar fans to see the players go to this Muslim area. It's just something that you know when you think of Beitar, you don't. It doesn't mix with Muslims. It never has. So. Suddenly, you're you know you're donating money to Bnei Sakhnin. You're signing two Muslim players, and you're sending uh, your team on kind of this uh, you know friendly match to uh, Chechnya. So it's very almost intense for the the nationalists or the very right wing, ultra radical right wing fans of Beitar, and they didn't really know exactly like how to handle it because it all happened relatively quickly. Unfortunately, uh, things got pretty bad. At the time uh, you know, they when, when one of the Palestinian players scored, a huge amount of fans left the match, protest. They burnt down uh, the memorabilia uh, office of Beitar Jerusalem, which you know burnt jerseys, uh, trophies, some of the most precious things of the club. They burnt down uh, during one of their matches. After the match, they went over to the mall uh, next door and started beating up Arabs, and it was really a lynch. Uh, so it was very, very uh, disgusting behavior, and uh, it kind of, you know, in Forever Pure, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it really shows how much uh, these these players were struggling. I mean, they're human beings, and every time they, they uh, you know, touched the, the ball, uh, they 1,000, 2,000 people would, would start, uh, from their own supporters, would start chanting against them. So it was a very bold move uh, by the owner, Gadimak, but It might have not come at the right time, uh, just the way he handled it, not meaning he shouldn't have done it. I'm obviously one of the people who is supportive of the action, but he didn't. I don't think I don't think he handled it in the best way. That's, you know, that's also a bit more complicated.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, just to quickly dwell on this, I think Gaidemar just simply didn't understand what, what, what he was doing, because, you know, he's obviously grown up in the Soviet Union, lived in France. I believe he he has a Jewish background, but you know I don't think he actually understood what he was walking into, and he just believed you know that he could change the culture of the club and you know most importantly, its' fans simply by you know forcing the issue more or less.
2: Yeah, exactly, and I mean it's it's admirable, but it also you need to as you said it you have to come kind of with the the research of what you're what you're trying to do, what you're planning to do. After that, after everything that happened with him, he you know he didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. He saw that he couldn't fix it. Uh, he tried. He gave the money to uh, Sachnin. It chewed him away. In essence, it basically he got over. It. He invested huge amounts of money into the team um, under his leadership. They won titles. They won a cup. He wasn't really into it by the end. He was really fed up with everything that happened.
0: And, and if we look at the uh, side note, um, I mean, how are they seen by the other fans and the other clubs in the division or in the country? I mean, are they seen as um, a dangerous, a right wing or a racist club or how are they perceived?
2: Uh, it, it, it's tricky. I mean, because, again, not every fan on Beitar Jerusalem is against Arabs. Uh, you know, there's the concept. People believe that that every single fan is at the match. Um, is it hates Arabs and doesn't love, like Arabs and that's actually very false um, It's something that I think uh, the, the I don't say the media sometimes, you know It makes it paints a picture. That's not necessarily hundred percent accurate and it kind of labeled all Beitar fans as racist And that's not true But the ones who are in La Familia which is the altar group and sometimes you could have a lot of people on on uh, that part of the stadium whether they're wearing the La Familia shirts or they're sitting with them uh, or they're joining the chants of, you know, death to Arabs or, um, you know, we hope your village burns. Those people might not be La Familia members, but if they're chanting those things and supporting those actions, then obviously they're, it doesn't, you don't need to have something on your t shirt to be racist. So there's the way it's really built right now is the east stand of the matches at Teddy Stadium, their home stadium, is La Familia and all people who are interested in that kind of ideology. And then the people on the other side of the stadium in the west stand, are more the moderates, uh, the parents that bring their kids and grew up with Beitar and refused to leave the club because they love the club. Really, uh, you know, it's the, obviously the more left-wing fans in Israel see Beitar as a very problematic club, and even you could say the 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 center or even the center-right fans, Israeli football fans, also see uh, Beitar as a problematic club, or maybe not club, but the fans. Whereas um, the right-wing you know, more of the right-wing, uh, groups of, I wouldn't say they're, they have an alliance with La Familia, but you see them kind of sometimes, I almost also say supporting, but they're not criticizing the things that they're doing. Um, you know, the Maccabi fanatics, the altar group of Maccabi, you know, they made some, some world uh, media attention when they posted, uh, at a football match last year, refugees not welcome. Uh, after all the German clubs started posting refugees welcome. Um, and La Familia kind of enjoyed that they did that. So um, you know, and they had a Trump, uh, Maccabi Fanatics had a Trump, TIFO, uh, a couple months ago as well. So they're more right-wing uh, fans. But it's not the same, uh, you know, there's not a level of hatred towards Arabs. It's not the same as what we see from La Familia.
1: Well, I think you need to explain really what right and left-wing is in Israel. Because we have a very strong understanding of right and left-wing politics. And, you know, I'm German-Canadian, for example. It's very defined in Canada and Germany what is right and what is left. I think, um, you know, for anyone who has been to Israel gets a certain idea of right and left-wing politics and how they differ. But I think that's something that really needs to be brought to the forefront here, because right-wing politics in Israel are not the same as right-wing politics in, you know, Western Europe or in North America. And left-wing politics are not necessarily the same either. You know, it's, it's very different, right? And I think that is something that needs to be almost discussed to just to give a background to what we're actually talking about because right-wing clubs don't necessarily mean the same in in israel than they do you know in places like germany canada united states
2: right so i mean the first thing uh that i think is important when you're trying to you know if we're gonna have like a quick israel politics talk is that in israel the most important issue and this is not my opinion this is according to poll's when you're talking about right wing or left wing, is security. Where I don't, I mean, yeah, obviously there's other countries that have also similar kind of viewpoints, but in Israel, people vote for their for who they're voting for based on security, not but based on you know costs of housing, health insurance, anything like that. It's based on security. So when the a right wing group in Israel, a very very right wing group in Israel would the reason why they would be very right wing is not at all because their views on on necessarily medical marijuana or LGBT rights or all of that. And I think that sometimes that gets confused uh, because, you know, you think, oh, um, you know, this this group, this really right wing organization, like why, why, why are they okay with medical marijuana? But they're saying these things about Palestinians don't exist. So that's a very like first thing to say is that in Israel, the the you know, what side you are politically is firstly, mostly based on how you see Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Whether you think there's such thing as an occupation or whether, well, it can't be an occupation because it's our land. I mean, that's the biggest thing. So when you talk about these fans from um, La Familia being, you know, right-wing or very right-wing, it's, it's not, you know, their views on the healthcare, their views on, on things like that. It's their views on how, how they see, you know, Arab citizens. They don't see them as equal. They don't see them as, you know, they think every Arab is a terrorist. They think that, Anybody wearing a hijab in the street wants to kill you. That is a lot of the viewpoint of some of these people. And how do I know? Because I've interviewed them and I've talked to them. And they really have this ideology and belief that an Arab is is not a human being. It's a person that's here to kill you. Um, you're a Jew and you're in Jerusalem. You're in any part of Israel and you don't believe. Uh, you don't. Sorry, you don't have the right to be there and they're going to come get you. So I think, you know, that's important to explain that it's, you know, people always ask me, people who are listening to us or into politics, you know, how someone like Bibi Netanyahu, uh, who's so many unpopular, even in Israel, how does he keep winning? How does he keep remaining prime minister? And the answer is because people vote for him because they feel safe with him. You know, the prices of of rent have skyrocketed. The prices at the grocery store have skyrocketed. In another country, um, in the world, maybe every other country in the world, those things would matter. Uh, and here they matter, obviously, there's protests, but when it comes election time, uh, you know, the talk of Netanyahu keeping you safe, you know, I'm, I'm the only candidate who will keep you safe during this war. Because remember, we have military operations or wars every couple of years, every two or three years that affect a huge amount of the population. Uh, and that's it. I mean, mm-hmm. whether. The prices of rent, none of that stuff matters anymore. It's just straight up security. So it's problematic, uh, but it is what we have here. And at the same time, it also makes sense yeah. to some
1: degree. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think people don't really un- understand that until they have been there to Israel. You hear the stories, right? When you, when you, about Israel, about how the conflict, and you see it on television and, you, you think you understand it and then you go there and, um, you know, you arrive at the airport, you go to the security checkpoints, um, you arrive at your hotel and your hotel has, every floor has a bunker, you know, to protect you from rocket attacks. And, um, even in places as far away as, as Tel you know, that seem to be relatively safe. When you lie on the beach there, you see the helicopters. Uh, patrol. And I think you don't really understand that, uh, until you get there. So I I think security, it makes sense, um, why people would put that on such a high level and why politicians, um, I don't want to place judgment here because I don't want to really pick sides, but I, you understand why, why people would put that before anything else.
2: Definitely. And I mean, and also you can, you can look at it, uh, in the Palestinian perspective and understand also how everything we just said could be very frustrating Mm. for them. Because it, it makes it that Israel has to put a, a huge amount of emphasis on military and on its security. And it also affects people, as they say, on the other side uh, of the wall. And uh, it's it's a very uh, complex situation. I think, you know, a person really learns something new every day, especially when they go to new parts, whether that's an Arab section or a section, or they cross over uh, and go to the Palestinian side, which is, again, it's, very for Israelis it's, and Palestinians, but vice versa, it's very difficult um, to go to, to, to different places. Um, whether it's for an Israeli to to Palestinian or uh, Palestinian to Israel, so you have to have special permission, or you have to be a journalist. Um, the going to Palestine for an Israeli is is not easy, and the same the other way. But it is what it is. and both countries, are doing what they feel they have to do, and you know it's funny. I just said I want to say this quickly. I just said both countries, and then in my head, I thought, well, you know, am I being controversial to my Israel side by saying uh, the Palestine's a country when it's not technically a country? Everything that comes out of your lip, you're going to offend. And when you actually, I don't want to say have a side, but when you're, for example, I'm Israeli, you feel like, oh, if someone's listening to this, they'll judge you for being, um, you know, not pro-Israel, because of just saying something so simple as using the word Palestine or saying Palestine Palestine, the country, um, so just, Maybe that'll help explain to the audience what how tense uh, the situation is mm-hmm. when just words can really affect you know what how people view what you're saying. So Tell I, me now. I, so yeah, Rafael. What
1: what are biter doing these days to you know fix this this issue? Um, you know of racism, and I, we we really want to don't want to call it anything else because right wing and left wing, as we mentioned earlier, is is not the right word for it. Um, right. And they have new ownership. So what is the new ownership? Ali Tabib, um, the owner, current owner, what is he doing to solve this issue?
2: Well, it's interesting. The first thing that he's doing is actually making the team better, which the, when the team is worse and the fans are more angry and they start to chant worse things. So his first thing was to fix the team and make sure that they'd compete again. Um, and that's that's he's done that. And that really, in some degree, has helped the fans calm down and not freak out so much. because. The worst they were the years the few years before he came, um, things would get very bad. And during the time that the Chechnyans were here is when they were finishing in 10th, 11th, 12th place. Uh, so that's step one. But actual in terms of real things that he's doing to stop the racism, if you go to a match in Teddy, you'll see signs all over the stadium that say, no, uh, stop the racism. Uh, and again, I know that might be cliche and doesn't sound like it's doing anything, but it, it is because it's a first step of, of admitting there's a problem and actually having signs in your stadium of doing something about it. Uh, the fans have come out with a video, or sorry, not the fans, the players have come out with this super, you know, powerful, dramatic video that we have to stop the racism. You know, we, we need to support everyone. Every player that comes on is equal. He's kind of just pushed into, you know, the culture of the of the club that it's this racism has to stop. I mean, it's just, it's enough. You know, it's been going on for years. It's put Petar in such a bad light. There's so much potential for the club. Uh, let's stop it. But in real action, the real, real things that he's done, he's he's worked closely with Israeli political uh, authorities on making sure that there's more police uh, in the La Familia section. And if they start doing anything, um, you know, he gets them out; they they get kicked out. Uh, he's even said on on radio that if he hears a loud racist chants from all from a, from La Familia fans, he'll bring uh, other players off the pitch. And to some degree, that's. Had La Familia be very quiet and be scared to see if he's actually going uh, to do it. Uh, He his biggest thing is he keeps claiming over and over that he's going to sign an Israeli air player. Uh, The first Israeli, excuse me, hiccup. The first Israeli air player ever, and that's something that we're waiting to see this summer. Um, You know, obviously that'd be a massive move, but it'd be a big move because you know he'd have to guarantee the safety of for himself and for all of his staff and for his players. But most importantly, you'd have to guarantee the safety of this Israeli Arab player who would be targeted all the time at training, at home, on the way to training, on the way back home, always. They'd always be bothered. Uh, they'd lose – I don't want to say they'd lose respect from some of their community, the Arab community, but some Arabs would not be happy with them moving there. Uh, they'd be saying, how can you go support you know, this race club when they, their argument would be, look, we're going to support coexistence and show that it's okay – a lot of uh, Israeli-era players have publicly said, I don't want to be you know, the one to go to Beitar and do that. It's coming. I mean, I've been covering this for many, many years. I was a Beitar fan when I was little uh, and stopped supporting them you know, around when things started to get bad. But it's it's something that's on the way. I'm not really sure if Tabib will be able to do it because of all the things I just mentioned. Uh, Eli Tabib, that is the owner. It's possible. And I think this summer, I think, will be very interesting to see if, if we see... Even the talks of players and contracts or players, you know, even saying, I'm kind of interested, let's meet for coffee and talk about the concept. Because it would be more than money, you know, once they got the contract sorted out. It would be all the stuff I mentioned, the security. How would he deal with, you know, at the training pitch um, every day, you know, fans always come. That's that's Jerusalem. Fans always come and, you know, say hi to the players. How would, how would they deal with that? I mean, you've seen in the, whether you're on YouTube or you've seen Forever Pure, when these Muslim players, when these Chechens were signed, hundreds of, of fans would go to the training and curse them and say horrible things. It'd be much, 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 much worse with an Arab player. So it's really bold, you know, from both sides, from the ownership and from the player. Uh, and lastly, the most important: How would the fans who are not racist, the fans, react to the to these players? Would they support him uh, more and, and tell Al to be quiet? Um, that's something that we actually saw two weeks ago for the first time in my life. I saw fans from the other side of the section, as we mentioned earlier, the East Wing are La Familia fans, the West Wing are the more modern fans. I saw them uh, shush uh, La Familia and tell them to be quiet when they started uh, chanting racist chants. In the past, they usually would just not do anything or you would hear a couple people saying boo, but this time you could hear hundreds, if not maybe thousands of people saying like, shut up, stop chanting racist things. So things are changing, the culture is changing, and it's uh, very interesting to follow
1: I think this, this is really just to, to follow up on, um, what you just said. Who in their right mind would s- sit themselves into that hornet's nest? Because uh, as you said, exactly. the, as you said, some of the most talented players, um, in Israel at the moment are Israeli Arab or have a Muslim ba- background. I'm thinking of Bibras Nacho, who of course I've been following quite closely. I know he's not technically an Arab. He's a Sikazian, mm-hmm. which is an entirely different group altogether but he's a muslim right right some of the most talented players the national team has at the moment have that kind of background for whatever reason that just seems to be the case right now and i think this is going to be maybe the perhaps the biggest challenge to convince someone to do this and um i know financial money goes a long way but it, it, it this is this is maybe a crazy comparison but it's kind of like telling a player to come out you know the, the issue of gay players, of course, is a big one in the United States. I think it's very easy to say, yeah. oh, nothing will happen, right? And it will be easy. But, you know, to actually go through this and make this career move, and this is a move that could, technic- could technically jeopardize someone's career, right? Because you don't know how mm-hmm. it works out. I think um, it will take some really bold to do this.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's been always talk that there's a lot all around it. I mean, when I when I say people, I mean, like, Uh, political figures that are working behind the scenes. Um, You know, the Israeli president right now is a guy who was former chairman of Beitar, but he's known in the international community, uh, Ruby Rivlin, as a guy who's always been very firm about coexistence. You know, Israelis and Arabs, Jews and Arabs working together, Israelis and Palestinians working together. And he's right now president of Israel. His uh, offices are in Jerusalem. And there's always been some speculation that, you know, he kind of has the power because he was the former chairman of Beitar. He's a member of Likud, which is the right-wing mm. party. Yes, he's even though he's a member of Likud, he's still very firm on his values. And, you know, he's replaced uh, Shimon Peres as president. And, uh, most people know about Shimon Peres' legacy regarding peace. So there's always been kind of speculation that if this were to happen, you know, you would need a lot of people to convince this Arab player uh, and the owner. Of course, it, it's, you know, obviously the Arab player, there's different sides, but also the owner, his life, you know, could be in jeopardy. It's it's very tricky. Uh, it, it's like I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if um, uh, a gay player coming out. I mean, I, I get exactly what you mean. Like it, mm. it has that kind of it, yeah. It's very similar because there's so many. You know, first of all, there'll be thousands of cameras. I mean, if this happened yeah. tonight, um, every media outlet in the world, from you know, from whether it's Canadian, German, Austrian sports newspapers, everyone uh, would send people here, just like they did when the Chechens were here. I mean, there mm. were hundreds of articles. Uh, documentaries from ESPN to Sky to every major media outlet because this would be so much more than football and it'd be the mega of the mega of a political and football story and that's a lot of pressure to deal with the fans your family um, as people saw in Forever Pure you know the players were praying you know (laughs) the Muslim players were praying in the empty bus uh, because they were kind of scared to do it anywhere else Um, so it's it's something fascinating it's gonna happen uh, I'm always the optimist. There will be a player. I'm confident of it. Will it be this summer? Who knows, really? There's lots of people, analysts who could blah blah, blah about it. I don't think anyone knows. It really depends on that one player, you know, saying I'm gonna do it and there's tons of players to pick from. You know, his Eli Tabib, the owners always said, if there's a, a, a talented Israeli Arab player who can help our team, That was kind of his talk about a year ago. Many shifted to, okay, I know that there's talented Israeli Arab players. I want to bring the player. One name that I would say, I know, before we move on to the FIFA uh, topic and the Israel-Palestinian uh, club, one player that people should keep an eye on is Ahmed Abed, who plays for Kiryat Shemone. Um, He's been on the national team before. He's one of Israel's bright, bright players. He's he's leaving Kiryat Shemone this summer. Uh, he was part of the historic Kiryat Shemone team that won the title. It's one of the smallest. Uh, teams in, in europe you know a town of twenty thousand to win a premier league title he was part of that team he's a player i would really uh, keep an eye on this summer about whether he's the one who could uh, make the move because he's going to leave he wants to go to a big club betar is most definitely a big club he's i know him personally he's a friend of mine He's a very tough character very talented player um has a lot of balls i mean pardon me for saying that but could be an interesting guy. I mean, I'm not giving any insight in for anything. I haven't talked to him about it. I don't know anything. And he just is one of the players that fits the mold of a guy who could do it. And I know he's gonna be leaving this summer. So he's someone to keep an eye on and uh we'll see what happens there.
0: Yeah, well as you said, uh Rafa, it's gonna be all eyes on that player when that does happen. We'll just have to see how that one works out for them. Uh, and we can only hope that his uh, his safety is uh, is uh, is it all okay and intact in the end, I suppose. Uh, but you did mention that we're going to talk about FIFA and um, about Palestinian Israeli clubs as well. And there's a bit of an issue going on there um, regarding what's called settlement clubs. Um, I think you're going to have to explain this uh, to everyone uh, what the issue is and what exactly a settlement club is.
2: Anyone who know you know studies po- politics or is familiar with world news. Knows that the term of Israeli settlements is probably one of the most controversial news topics in the world, and the way I I explain the story could piss off a right wing person or could piss off a left wing person because no matter how you explain it, there's always um, you know somebody's going to be upset. But I'm going to try and explain it without any bias, which really is hard to do because no matter what you say, it could it could affect someone. But I'm going to try. So here it goes. In 1967. Well, you know, yeah, I'm going to start with 1967. I'm not even going to start from the beginning. Beginning in 1967, 67, uh, Israel annexed uh, the West Bank, which is uh, basically what people would call now Palestine, uh, and started building uh, settlements in what the international community termed as ali- uh, inter- illegal to do because it was not their land; it was occupied land, which is why we always hear the term. Uh, occupied territory occupation and they started building these small settlements all across with the intention of uh, expanding the population um, You know there's ideological reasons, security reasons, etc, cetera, etc cetera. But these clubs that we're going to be talking about are clubs that are past the 1967 green line meaning they according to international law uh, every country in the world c- classifies them as settlements except Israel uh, Israel says that they're they have the right to it. They they annex it. They, the Jewish people have been there for thousands of years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So all the clubs that we're about to name are, according to international law, the the the, 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 the place where these Israeli towns are, are in theory, uh, according to international law, in Palestine. It's occupied territory. Again, it's I don't know. It's it's very hard to do this in in a minute, but you get the point. It's it's technically not Israeli territory. And that's, I think, the best way to start off before we get deep into it, is that these clubs are considered an occupied territory.
0: Okay, and what exactly is uh, FIFA planning to do uh, about it? I know that they issued a statement and Israel are uh, lobbying it, aren't they?
2: The Palestinian Football Association, uh, led by Jabr Rejoub, who's a senior member of Fatah, which is the political movement that governs the West Bank, You know, uh, was in a civil war with Hamas in the mid-2000s. Uh he is the head of the Palestinian Football Association. He's saying these clubs at, uh, that uh that we're gonna mention, you know, these clubs that are in Israeli settlements, they should not be in the Israel Football Association. They shouldn't have the right to exist. I mean, they're on they're in occupied territory, they're in ter- territory that's not considered Israel according to their national community. How can how can FIFA uh, let Israel continue to have these teams, you know, play in occupied territory? Israel is saying Uh, The Palestinians are doing this for political reasons. I mean, these clubs are in third and fourth division, third and fourth and fifth tier. This is all a political move to get, uh, you know, Jabril Rajiv more credibility because there's a lot of talk. He could be the next president of Palestine when uh, Mahmoud Abbas uh, resigns or steps down or whatever. You know, he's getting older. Um, So there's, there's lots of issues going on here. But the Palestinians' main objection is that this is not Israeli territory according to international law. And the Israelis are saying, look, this is we annex this territory. This is there's Israeli flags there. Israeli law, military and civilian law applies in these territories. You know, why? Why not? You know, why? What's the problem? I mean, it's we're here. We're there. Uh, the, the places that we're talking about are not new settlements. They've, they've been here for decades. What's the issue? So this is going to FIFA. Uh, the FIFA Congress is going to be in Bahrain this year in about two weeks. Two years ago, um, the Palestinians wanted to kick out Israel in general from FIFA. They uh, had a lot of reasons, which you can go go ahead and Google right now. I'm really not going to get into it. Um, But in the end, there there was a vote and they decided, uh, excuse me, before the vote, there was lots of talk of there being a vote. Ah, uh, Jabourizou, but at the last minute decided to withdraw the vote, and he said he wasn't gonna gonna do it. But this is now a, kind of a smaller issue, but actually, it is technically not. It's actually a bigger issue because it's something that could a- actually happen. Um, as a person who covered the Israel, uh, the Palestinians trying to expel FIFA, uh, Israel from FIFA, I could always kind of tell you, and whenever I did any interviews or when I wrote about it it was always hinted that this was very very unlikely to happen for lots of reasons where when you look at this specific situation about what will happen to these clubs i tend to believe that there something major will happen in towards the palestinians uh suggestion just because of how it's kind of it's not an issue of kicking israel out of the fa out of fifa it's something dealing with clubs that don't really matter it's it's more a symbolic uh thing for israel so it's, it's complicated. It's going to go, um, uh, they're going to talk about it a lot at the FIFA Congress. It might be like the, the, one of the biggest things you hear, uh, during those few days in Bahrain. It might be the thing that captures a lot of media, uh, attention just as the Palestine, uh, trying to, uh, kick out Israel from FIFA did a couple years ago. And then, you know, we had also the FIFA scandal, the corruption scandal. This, I think this will be the biggest, uh, headline that you'll see from this upcoming FIFA congress. Mm. Yeah, it's very complicated. It's all political and we'll see what happens, but uh, I'm sure there's many things we want to touch on it.
1: Yeah, one thing that I want to touch on and um, I I remember I was in Israel when around the time when this happened and this was this uh, human rights watch report that came out and Right. Um, the Human Rights Watch report, uh, the headline was FIFA sponsoring games on seized land. And um, I wrote an article uh, about this uh, on footballgrad.com. And, I, you know, don't want to get into that detail too much, but I compared it for many reasons to the Crimean president and what it, Palestine is trying to do in many ways, similar things than what Russia tried to do with Crimea that's a totally different story altogether um the what struck me about this human rights report was you know this i think it's 6 clubs that are targeted right um mm-hmm. and the report the, there was quite a lot of flaws in it um i read it in great detail and, and some of the things that they mentions is the the fact that UEFA is more or less sponsoring Israel because of the amount of money the Israeli FA is earning through Champions League um you know, you could sort of sense that the person that wrote this report, in particular, hadn't didn't really quite understand the the economics of world football. Another thing that was ignored, and I remember I talked to Uri Levy in great detail, who you also know quite well about this, right. is the fact that some of these clubs actually try to consolidate. You know, the difficulties between Israelis and Palestinians. In in those territories, you know. Yes. So it's it's it, the, the yes. yes, there is clubs there, and you can argue whether or not they should be playing there. But I think the report completely it's. I felt it was very one sided. This this is just my personal opinion. Again, I try to be as neutral as possible, but I felt that report was very one sided because it didn't actually highlight the things that were, clubs were doing there, and it also kind of um, ignored the logistics. Of what it meant to move some of these teams outside of these territories because this is a suggestion by this report these clubs could just play on Israeli territory well this would mean that some of these people and this includes Palestinians would have to drive through you know 50 kilometers sometimes 60 kilometers go through the checkpoints etc right just to play or train and uh, I think there was a lot of weaknesses in this report in particular
2: yeah I mean uh, the, the report was clearly you know The report was clearly written with, uh, I don't want to say a pro-Palestinian, I don't want to say that, but the the bottom line is all these reports and and these things, they all have political agendas or political leanings. They're trying to be neutral, but it's hard to be and, you know, yeah, it wasn't wasn't about the fact that a lot of uh, Arab young players play um, on the youth teams and, and they get an opportunity to play. On these scenes and some of the coaches promote, you know, promote them playing together. Whenever you think of settlers, you think of or you think of these people that you see on the news that are, uh, you know, gripping olive trees out. And don't get me wrong. There's lots like that. But in every situation, just like sometimes people say Palestinians, when you see on the news, Palestinians and terrorism, then you think all Palestinians are terrorists. It, it's both sides. I mean, there's that, you know, in my lab, which is considered, again, a settlement. And it's past the green line. Most of the people who live there, I don't live there for ideological reasons. Uh, they live there because it's cheap, and it's a, much cheaper than Jerusalem. And a lot of those people, you know, have no problem with Arabs coming to to play with them, and have no problems with things like that. So, it, you know, yeah, that's that's a good point. It's very it's very tricky because you know you try and look at it as as it is, and you try and say, okay, you know, in theory, what they're saying is true, but you know, there's more. There's more to it than that. And, and, you know, Palestinian politics always play a very big part in a lot of these things. I mean, to be frank, during the whole Palestinian F.A. trying to kick out Israel um, from FIFA, this top five senior member of uh, Fatah, he is a guy who many consider the next, potentially the next Palestinian president. Um, so a lot of these things, you know, are, are really whether they're true or not is not really the point. You kind of have to look at more deep incentives. And I don't even necessarily just mean on the Palestinian side. Um, for Israel, you could argue that they'd want to keep these teams in because for them it's symbolic. I mean it's symbolic for both sides, but you could say for Israel they want to show the world, okay, you know, a huge UN resolution just passed uh, that I'm sure everyone's aware about, about um, you know the settlements and how it's occupied territory and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it could be – it's a win for the Israeli government if this stands. Um, now, what we're hearing right now, the latest reports are that FIFA might say to Israel, "Look, you have six months to get these teams out of their current locations, and wh- you know whether th- that means them going defunct, them going bankrupt, or canceling them, or moving them into 67 lines." That's kind of unclear. But then the question is, if Israel says no to a, like a direct FIFA command, you could say a suggestion. Um, And sorry, not suggestion, kind of command that if you don't do this, we're going to punish you. Would FIFA then be forced to expel Israel uh, from the from FIFA? Because that in itself would be a massive uh, political, you know, earthquake. You could say if Israel was kicked out uh, by FIFA or would 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 there be a massive fine uh, that could, you know, really screw over the F.A. financially to the point where they can't pay for specific things i mean you know what will israel do i mean right now i can tell you israeli officials diplomats from all over the world are working on this right now they're talking to uh, people Mm. in the governments wherever they are about saying like look put pressure on your football association or your government to say it's okay for these teams to stay in the settlements and play there it's okay you know it's not hurting anyone uh Rajub is doing this for political reasons what jabril is doing the same he's talking to people all over the world and saying look this is important. This is our land. They have their own land. They have their own country. Uh, this is occupied land. It's, he could argue and say, it's not me who's saying this is occupied land. America says it's occupied land that you, you mm. says as it's occupied land. You need to tell them to back off. It's not like there's a massive club here. There's no first division or second division club, no, no serious budgets, nothing crazy. Uh, so it's it's really a political war um, yeah. that has football in the crossroads. And it's going to come down to something in the next couple of weeks. I mean, we're going to have an answer. And if Israel decides not to follow FIFA's command, I'm 100% sure there will be very, very serious uh, repercussions by FIFA towards or, the Israel Football Association. Oh,
1: you can be certain of that. And I mean, this is where I do want to bring in the parallel with the Crimea and the experience that I had with Russia and Ukraine, because you have to remember that Russia occupied the Crimea illegally, right? And then tried to incorporate the teams that were pro- previously playing on in the Ukrainian Premier League. And this is uh, FK Sebastopol right. and uh, Tavira Simferopol. They were trying to uh, incorporate them into the Russian football Premier League, uh, not Premier League, but Russian football pyramid structure. And UEFA came down really hard on them, really quick, and, um, told them no, they couldn't, because the international community did not accept Crimea as part of Russia. And this is where we are today, right? Um, it's still a very uneasy situation with the Russia occupying it firmly, having it completely, the, the peninsula completely incorporated into its territory. But the rest of the world, uh, you know, whenever you look at a global map, it's under you, what what they like to do with these like parallel lines, right, to to symbolize that it's occupied. So uh, right. you, basically what happened in the Crimea is that UEFA went in and stepped in and said, look, there's two ways we can do this. You keep playing these teams in your league and we're going to sanction you. And in this case, we, we can tell that how severe these sanctions would have been because Russia backed down completely, right? And gave up control over football matters on the Crimea, and the sanctions would have been uh, expelling the Russian Football Union from international play, and that would have included the clubs, the national team, and it would have also meant the end of uh, the World Cup bid. Um, it would have meant the of end course. of, of <laughs> Russia's World Cup. So they, right. um, even big Russia, you know, with all its input, and we have to remember Mutko at the time was a vice president at FIFA. They had to step down. And accept this and what happened, what is happening now is, and then this is something I mentioned in the article, is that UEFA controls the territory. So there's an independent Crimean football association and independent Crimean football league, and it's all run by UEFA. And that's a compromise. I guess the question to you would be, would be something like that possible there? Or could these, cause I can't really see these Israeli teams playing against Palestinian teams, you know, because that would be obviously what they could do. They could say, okay, well, I guess right. we can't really play in Israel because we're not Israeli-based teams by international law. So could we play in a Palestinian league? My gut instinct would be saying no. It would be so politically charged, it would be probably next to impossible. Um The other solution would be in completely independent league, you know, so that they can play amongst each other and it could be run by some kind of association or body um, but I think both both of these solutions don't really would, wouldn't really appeal to either side, right?
2: You know the situation of them playing in the Palestinian Football Association, which by the way has a very strong league, and I'm sure mm. you know you've read, and, and people should check out Baba Gol or Levy's written a lot yeah. about the Palestinian football. That will never happen under any circumstances for so many reasons. Mo- mainly political i mean you can't have people with israeli passports playing in, in hebron and in ramallah yeah. um it's just it's not safe and it's you know it's unfeasible so that is something that would be great in, in in theory but obviously as you mentioned it would be very difficult moving them into israel then again you go with the whole issue of having a team that's not considered legal then playing in israel which is then justifying that they are legal so that would also be complicated uh, making it independent league. I don't. There, I don't think there's enough teams because they're in different divisions right now, and they both have different amount of uh, players in in their whether it's youth department or senior level. Uh, you know, some of them are getting paid a little bit. There is a team in the third division, for example, where I'm sure there's some players getting paid a tiny bit. And then there's teams in the fifth division where it's totally you know volunteer. So it's a really complicated uh, situation. And I mean, one thing that's interesting. And again, I don't want to get too. too much into the politics of it. But when you look at um, the situation with uh, Crimea and Ukraine and Russia, you could argue, I know, most people, I think, would say Russia, uh, you know, invaded um, Crimea. I mean, right, I think the three of us would agree on that, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's what it is. Yeah. Occupied status, right? Um,
2: <laughs> right, exa- exactly. So I think when you look at the Israel situation, you know, the Palestinians will argue that it's occupation and the international community will argue that, but then an Israeli argument could be, look, we, this was in a war. This was in self defense. Uh, Israel annexed Jerusalem and the West bank mm. in a war that was launched by multiple Arab countries. Um, you know, then they didn't leave as in, you know, in the UN resolution, uh, they were supposed to leave the occupied territory. That's, you know, again, that's getting into politics of it, but yeah. um, it's, it's very complicated and it's like, okay, You know, what if is the Israel, Israel is a very, is very, is very well known in the world for kind of saying, screw you to what the world is telling Israel to do. Um, You could even say more than any other country, obviously their power is not similar to Russia's power politically and the size of the population, the power that, you know, that Russia has all over the world. But Israel in itself, whether it's true or not, believes that it's a, a global power and I don't know. I, f- I feel like it could be, become kind of a standoff um, mm. between either Israel and FIFA or Israel and the PFA, where they really put them. I mean, they've been in a room, by the way, multiple times, the head of the Israel FA and the head of the Palestinian FA. They've had talks in Zurich. They've had talks um, in Israel. Uh, Ofer Yanni, the, the chairman, ha- I don't think he's gone to Ramallah, but he, he might have uh, quietly or maybe he did once. I don't remember. But uh has definitely been to Israel multiple times. Um, and they met, like I said, in Zurich, so um, or Geneva, somewhere in Switzerland, Geneva, I think. You know, it's it, it's going to come down to can Israel and the Palestinians make a compromise, which you know that's kind of an oxymoron because <laughs> we've been there's been try- they've been trying to make a compromise in peace for 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 decades. So could they make a compromise in this? And if not, um, and Israel says you no, know, like there's not really a solution besides saying these clubs don't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, that will be a po- that will be a political issue. That'll be a, a right wing, you know, pro settlement. How could you give up on these these players, these teams? How could you say like we're knocking them out, or we're gonna you know take the funding away, or we're gonna make sure they can't sign up for the Israel Football Association? Could you have an Israel Football Association fight with Israeli politics, where the FA says that, to the government, you know, I'm sorry, but we're kicking them out, and right wing people in the government say, "No, you're not." It's a very deep issue, which is why, again, I think during uh, the FIFA Congress, this will be probably the biggest topic on the agenda in terms of things that are, you know, interesting. You could say juicy uh, for media yeah. or people who are interested. Not even this kind of stuff, but most of the FIFA Congress agenda this year is relatively blah blah blah. But this is a big topic, and both. Uh, this- Israeli representation will be in Bahrain, uh, even though we have no diplomatic relations with them whatsoever. Um, it's very hard for Israel to agree to send the delegation, but they'll be accompanied by heavy, heavy security, and uh, the Bahraini security also will be keeping a very close eye on them, and it's also a very small uh, delegation that yeah. Israel sending for security reasons. Yeah, uh, I don't know. It's It's something that there's so many ways it could go, and the thing, unlike the topic we just discussed, it kind of has to be, I don't not sorted out but it needs to be addressed because this uh, you know it's this this congress is next weekend you know we're already on Monday um it's not this weekend it's next weekend it starts at the beginning of the weekend so i behind the scenes lots of things are happening things will happen i'm sure things will happen and it could be big things it could be small things i don't know if if you ask for a prediction i i don't think any really give a prediction but my mini prediction i guess you could say would be that israel is going to fight to the teeth to make sure uh, that these clubs stay and get continue to play wherever they are, whether it's in the third division, the fourth division, the fifth division. And it's going to be a tough, tough assignment uh, for FIFA to deal with this situation. This could be their first real uh, crisis under the new regime, under the new leadership of FIFA. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see what way they go.
1: Yeah, I think you, you say something really important. And this is maybe a final thought before we wrap it up. You say the difference between Russia and Israel, and I think I agree with you 100% that Israel, because of cultural differences and the way Israel was formed, they will probably draw a line on this and willing to, you know, even face expulsion um just because out of principle. Russia is very different in that sense. Um In Russia, it's all about saving face, you know, this old right. Soviet Union mentality. And the World Cup means the world for this country. And, uh, I think they were willing to compromise because losing the World Cup would have been a big loss of face for, for Russia. I think, um, and you can correct me if, if that's a wrong no, perspective, no, I but think, I, I think, no,
2: I think it's fascinating.
1: My, my perspective on Israel has always been that, you know, um, it's a country formed out of, out of uh, adversity and it's a country formed, um, Through very, very, a lot of very difficult circumstances. And, um, as a, because of that, it has, it has developed a resolve that, um, if it has to be us against the world, so be it. And I can see, I can see that turning into, well, we're not going to compromise. And if you're going to sanction us, then we're, we're going to accept the sanctions over this. No problem. We're just going to live with it. And I can, I don't, I'm not saying that's how it's going to play out, but I wouldn't be surprised if it would because of the, I think the mentality that has developed in Israel. And this is not a criticism by any means. It's just, that's yeah. just an observation. No, it's the truth. <laughs>
2: no, it's great.
1: And um, I-, I think. Yeah. And I think that's, I-, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, we have seen those kind of sanctions, uh, those who are old yeah. enough. So South Africa comes to mind. Of course, I don't want to compare Israel to South Africa no, because I don't want to open that can hard. of worms at
2: all. But we've seen right. it, right? It has happened before. So, um, yeah, I and, mean, to, you know, my, my concluding thoughts are to 100 percent. I agree with you. Um, I think what you said is, is the, the mentality and the culture between Russia and Israel is very different. And you know, when you just look really quickly at the settlement example, the whole world tells Israel not to build settlements, mm. and they continue to build settlements, and Israel's been dealt all sorts of blows um, over the years, financial blows, I mean, all sorts of things, uh, all sorts of sanctions, all sorts of resolutions, and and losing business, and, and factories closing, and, and, and concerts not being played here, and all sorts of things you can think of. But it's something that, because it's such a political issue, and because it's teams, in what Israel would call Judea and Samaria, what Israel would call pro- Israel. I mean, it's, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not really trying to give my opinion on everything, but the, the average, I don't know if the average, but the more, someone who'd be more senator right would say that these so-called settlements, these settlements are Israel. Mm. There's no difference between, you know, giving an example of one of the teams, there's a team in Ariel. There's no difference between Ariel than Jerusalem or Tel Aviv or Haifa or, Anything that's you know non-controversial, would um, maybe Jerusalem was a terrible, <laughs> a terrible <thing laughs> word, uh, city to use, but Tel Aviv, for example. So it's something that the FA also could be fighting with, and uh, I'll be reporting about a lot in the next couple of weeks. I'm I'm going to be having a, a BBC um, radio package about it ahead, right? Uh, dr- actually, right exactly as the Congress is going on, and I'm going to be speaking to both sides to try and get. Uh, their perspective, including um, some of the teams that are having to deal with this and also the Palestinian uh, Football Association and hopefully the Israeli Football Association. But um, I can say uh, th- this, that some there's lots of people who are mum about it right now um, and are being careful about what they say and being instructed not to say things. And I'll leave it at that um, because it's such a delicate topic that any kind of quote in the media that could be wrong or they they didn't mean to say it could be lead to something big. My biggest thing I want to really end with is all the people who followed the Israel Palestine Palestine trying to kick Israel out of the FA uh, out of FIFA in you know a couple of years ago this is actually a much bigger deal and a much more interesting topic because that really was never going to happen. Um, and I think if you spoke to some Palestinian officials, they kind of would say off the record that they knew it was almost impossible for it to be to to really happen but this is something that like something big has to happen whether it's Israel saying no we're not going to do it or Israel saying yes okay let's do a compromise and that's something Israel didn't didn't really do um with this FIFA thing they more fought it diplomatically and spoke to all the countries and they honestly then put a ton of pressure on the Palestinian authority and Jordan um to tell Jub like you need to withdraw this request and that's what he ended up doing the Palestinians will not withdraw this request from everything I've been told. They're going to go through with this. They firmly believe in it. Um, they have many people b- supporting them. The other, the other times, uh, people necessarily weren't supporting what they were saying. This time, they have reports. They have countries. They have the world saying that settlements are illegal. Um, so this topic is going to be very interesting to follow if you're into this kind of stuff. And if you made it this long in the podcast, I'm pretty sure you are interested in this kind of stuff. So keep an eye on what occurs there.
0: Yeah, well, it's been an absolute honor having you on the uh, podcast, uh, Rafa. Uh, we really appreciate it. It'll be fantastic to get you back on when we get a bit more uh, clarity as to what exactly is going to happen with this uh this situation and I, I can tell you that we'll all be tuning in uh, to see what exactly is the outcome uh, is there anything you'd like to plug um or where can people find your uh, your writings or your your twitter accounts uh, online
2: uh, just yeah just my twitter um if you're interested in this kind of stuff we've been discussing it's mostly what i tweet about um so rafael r-a-p-h-a-e-l underscore geller g-e-l-l-a-r i post all my work there and uh, I love interacting with everyone, um, Palestinians, Israelis, Jordanians, Saudi, Arabia, everyone is welcome. I don't discriminate. I think dialogue is important. So anyone who wants to chat about this stuff, you're welcome to uh, talk to me. And uh, I look forward to coming back on the show. It's a pleasure speaking to both of you. Uh, it's, it's always fun to speak to people who are interested in this kind of stuff. And uh, it's, thank you again. It's, it's been great being on.
0: Yeah, thank you. And Manu, what would you like to, uh, to plug? Um, uh, what have you got coming up in the next week or so?
1: Yeah, um, not that much political stuff, although, you know, never know in a post-Soviet space that we cover with footballgrad.com. There's all sorts of stuff always coming up. So keep an eye on that. But, um, as, the other podcasts I always like to mention them, football grad podcast, obviously going to be recorded, um, later this week. And then we have the Pressing podcast that we did, um, yesterday, right? Bryce, it's all already out. So go give that a listen. And then you can follow me on Twitter and discuss all sorts of things. Um, you know, I have a PhD in, in politics and sports in the post Soviet space. So that's m- my forte. And if you want to discuss that, you can find me at Manuel Weff. And you can find all articles um, at Football Grad Life.
0: Yeah, and I've been your host, Bryce Dunn. You can find me on Twitter at WFI underscore Bryce, S-B-R-Y-C-E. All I can plug is, I suppose, the Gegenpressing impressing uh, Bundesliga podcast. I would say check that out. Unfortunately, not very much uh, political. But uh, thank you very much for tuning in uh, and taking the time out to, uh, to check out the the podcast we've got many of other podcasts uh, coming out across uh, wfi make sure to check them all like thank you very much bye